Everybody, welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 198 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. And having just discussed last time how difficult it is to count days in Rivendell and what exactly that may or may not mean or have to do or not have to do with Elrond's Ring of Power, um, we are going to immediately start counting days in Rivendell. Um, so that will be fun. Um, first, though, uh, a couple quick announcements. So uh, remember, our regional moots are coming up. We have New England moot, which is coming up very swiftly now, uh, barely more than a fortnight away on the 25th of September in Durham, New Hampshire. So if you're in the area, I hope you can join us in person. And if not, you can join us digitally because it is a fully hybrid moot. Um, so uh, I look forward to being able to... Um, have folks join us there either way. And then we have Middle Moot in Waterloo, Iowa on the 9th of October. Um, so um, that's um, those are the two that I've been talking about. We also have, um, you know, we also have another one which is coming up um, in um, November, early November, Bay Moot. Uh, in Berkeley, which is happening in early November. And I wanted to just kind of put out an appeal for that. Um, if any of you who are in the uh, the Bay Area, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, again, Berkeley is where the moot is going to be geographically located. Um, anyone who's in the, the area who might be interested in, uh, in volunteering to help uh, organize that, um, I was... Uh, I was petitioned by the folks, by the team who's organizing that, um, to just kind of invite people if people are interested in doing that. If you are, um, then please just send an email to info at signumu.org, uh, and we will pass that along uh, to the moot organizers there uh, in Berkeley, and uh, we can get you connected there. Always appreciate the help. It's not very burdensome. There's not an enormous amount of work to do, uh, but it is nice to be able to distribute the work among a few people. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so those are the three moots that are coming up most imminently. Um, the other thing that I wanted to bring up, because it is happening more soon than any of them all, um, is I wanted to... And of course, I hope you have your copy of The Nature of Middle-Earth, which was just released. This is a very exciting book um, uh, edited by Carl Hostetter, the, the, the new material. And this is really exciting for me because this is the first book containing new Tolkien material in really quite some time. I know um, that uh, especially for an author who's been dead for going on 50 years, Tolkien has been very prolific uh, in the last couple decades. And so, you know, this may seem like just another Tolkien book that's been put out here. Um, but this is very different from the others in that it contains material never been published before or at least only ever been published in some extremely um, uh, some small places that are difficult to find and min many people have not seen. So um, anyway, that's um, uh, 
this that's why this is such an exciting uh, work because there are a lot of things that we're going to be seeing for the first time. And so we're going to want to talk about it. Uh, so I'm going to beginning, be beginning a new Mythgard Academy session where we're going to discuss this book chapter by chapter. And we're going to start it on the 22nd of September because that seems like a good date to start. And I know that not everybody's got their copy of the book yet and everything. And I give you a little bit of time to start reading. Um, so we are... Um, um, <laughs> I like that, Amadros. Amadros is saying, uh, uh, apparently, dead men tell new tales. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, so we're going to go chapter by chapter. Now, mind, chapter by chapter. This is a Mythgard Academy session, not exploring the Lord of the Rings. We're not going to go sentence by sentence through this book uh, and take 30 years. Um, I'm not promising I'm going to be done really fast. Um, but if I had to guess, if I had to guess, it's probably going to be 20 sessions or so, about, about 20 weeks worth of discussion, you can write that down. Um, I, it's just a guess. It might end up being longer. Who knows? Um, but uh, but there's a lot of stuff in there, and uh, uh, Michael, exactly, and some of it was is definitely a little bit... Um, uh, uh, a bit dense, right? So it's going to take some going to take some working through. And Hrothgar, yeah, we're going to do the War of the Jewels after. Now it's hard because... <sighs> The completionist in me, who likes to not only do everything thoroughly, but to do it in the proper order, I would kind of like to do. So, you know, for those of you who who know, we've been um, we've been discussing our way through the entire history of Middle Earth series over the last. Oh goodness, what's it been? What was it? Twenty fourteen? We did uh, Book of Lost Tales Volume One. It was twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen. Um, one or the other. Anyway, so it's been like six, seven years. We've been working our way through the whole history of Middle-earth interspersed with other works because we have a rule in the Mythgard Academy that we don't talk about it. Uh, a Two books by the same author in a row, which is basically means we have to do a non-Tolkien book every other time in um, in uh, in um, practical terms. So uh, Anyway, so, you know, we've, and some of the books we've done in the middle have been things like Maori's Mort D'Arthur, which was 36 sessions long. Um, anyhow, so, um, we're, we've done the first 10 volumes now of the history of Middle-earth. So we've got two left, The War of the Jewels and The Peoples of Middle-earth. And it was time to do, you know, we, normally we would have been starting The War of the Jewels here. But then, you know, the news was released that this book came out and I was like, well, okay. So, in theory, this is almost all of it stuff that Tolkien wrote very, very late in his life. So really, like, if we were going in sequence, I would wait until after we did The Peoples of Middle-earth and read this, as it were, a 13th volume of the history of Middle-earth. But I'm not that patient. I want to talk about it right now uh, because it just came out and we're all reading it. And so like, well, let's read it together. So I'm going to make an exception. We're going to skip, we're going to jump the queue and we're going to, we're going to go straight to the nature of Middle Earth because obviously that's really what we should do. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start, as I say, on the Wednesday evening. So Mythgard Academy is something that's been happening since 2013. Um, every Wednesday night, same time uh, as this, 10 p.m. Eastern time, uh, we start Mythgard Academy, and um, uh, we do discussions of books chapter by, as I say, chapter by chapter. It's not sentence by sentence. Um, and um, uh, so it's a quick pace um, uh, through uh, through these books. Um, so... 
Yeah, Trifle, that's, I was thinking that too. Uh, Trifle says it, it actually fits quite well as the beginning of the book references Morgoth's ring quite a bit. Yeah, we just, um, um, we just, uh, um, we just finished Morgoth's Ring was the last Tolkien work uh, that we did in that kind. Wow, what a book that was. Uh, what a discussion that was. Oh, man, that was so good. So, um, I mean, I had so much fun uh, doing the uh, the the doing Morgoth's Ring. I learned so much. Um, that was long, too. We did like 30 sessions or something like that on um, Morgoth's Ring. So who knows exactly where we'll end up with the nature of Middle-earth, but we'll see. Um, anyhow, so that's... Um, that's where we're going. That's what's that's what's going to happen. So starting on the 22nd. So September 22nd, in honor of Bilbo and Frodo's birthday, we are going to start discussing the nature of Middle-earth, and we'll discuss it for as long as it takes. Um, so just wanted to make sure everybody knows about that. Um, you can find more information on that. We'll be posting more information about a link uh, at which you can join us for the live sessions. Um, on... Um, uh, on... The um, uh, on our webpage on the Mythgard uh, webpage, Mythgard.org. Um, you can also follow it if you're following it asynchronously. If you can't be there live for class, uh, then you can follow it uh, on the Mythgard Academy podcast. It's a separate podcast feed that we have for the Mythgard Academy, um, or of course on YouTube, and we'll be you know broadcasting it in all of the normal places. Um, anyway, so. Those are the things that are happening. Very exciting, um, uh, very exciting month this month here in September. Now, let's jump back into the text. And before we move on to the next passage, um, don't worry, I'm not going to, I'm not reopening this slide exactly. Um, but I, I got a question on Twitter, which I misanswered because I misunderstood the question at first. Um, and so I wanted to loop back to it, and I thought it was apt because it really brought up something that, that, that we kind of skipped past and like we can't have that right so um, um, <laughs> exactly you'll go out there we aren't going back but we're not going forward exactly true okay so the question was just, just about this the slide we did last week um, what about helping me with my book and making a start on the next um, and the question um, and let me make sure I I Oh, I've already forgotten. Bill Harkness, that's who asked me. So Bill was asking, what's the book? Helping me with my book. Which book exactly is Bilbo asking for help with? And we spent so much time focusing on the making a start on the next and have you thought of an ending for it that we didn't really talk about the my book so much. And so I just wanted to address that and make a couple um, make a couple comments on that. Um, so, because of course the question is like, well, like The Hobbit's done, right? I mean that book has been in the can for some time now. So what's he talking about? And one question was, is he talking about um, the Silmarillion? Because this is his translations from the Elvish that he's referring to. So is he here asking Frodo for help with the Silmarillion? And I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that he's talking about essentially the Hobbit. Well, not exactly the Hobbit. He's talking about... the Red Book. He's talking about his his diary, right? Um, he is telling the story. Now, like, what has started as originally as his diary, right, is growing until it becomes the Red Book of Perianath, right? The 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 the, the Red Book uh, of Westmarch, the the Red Book of the Halflings, um, an account, right, of the hobbits and all that they did, right, from uh, which begins with Gandalf's visit to Bilbo on that day. Um, 
and ends with all of the Lord of the Rings material. I don't see any reason to think that Bilbo has stopped working on that in the meantime. I do not know exactly what materials um, are there in the middle, but I don't believe it to be the same as the translations from the Elvish. Remember that that was given to Sam in three volumes, right? And is definitely not the Red Book of Westmarch. And I think that when Bilbo says the phrase, my book, he means the Red Book, the book that he's been writing in, right, this whole time. Remember also that in the um, notes on Shire Records in the, uh, in the introduction, um, we're told that the Hobbit, the Hobbit is described as that portion of the Red Book of Westmarch previously published under the title of The Hobbit, right? Um, Bilbo's book is not, it, Bilbo's book doesn't end with, uh, um, you know, passing Gandalf the tobacco jar, right? That's where the published Hobbit ends, but that's not where Bilbo's book necessarily ends. Um, so I think, um, remember also, again, the comment that uh, Bilbo makes to Frodo in the, um, in the council, right? Um, about how there, was whole, there were whole chapters of stuff uh, before you even got here. He clearly sees this as, um, um, up to that point anyway, Right, uh, Bilbo's or Frodo's uh, uh, escape from the Shire, and then his trip to Rivendell. It's, it's all, I think, in Bilbo's mind, all part of the same story. It's not until now. I think the thing that maybe um, uh, that I, I'm only kind of thinking through here just now. I wonder if, in this moment, after the council's over, after Frodo has volunteered to be the ring bearer. I wonder if this is now, if, if it's only now that Bilbo has first begun to think of that as a, as a new book, as a next book, right? Um, the next story. Whereas up, up to this point, it was just like, you know, me and Frodo and our adventures, right? Which started with his adventure and then he's been writing in it in the meantime. Um, uh, and, um, you know, remember, um, remember one of the titles, remember ahead to one of the titles that is going to be appear crossed out, right? Um, uh, there and back again and what happened after, right? Um, so, um, yeah, exactly, JJ. Bilbo realizes he won't be a part of the story from this point on, so it'll be a sequel. Yes, but also... I think that he now realizes after the council that the story is basically he realizes that his own story was only a prequel, right? In the end, he didn't think of it that way at the time. Um, but um, I think the and what happened after suggests to me, I don't I don't think so. Bard, my theory is that he doesn't start off by characterizing um the War of the Ring and everything as what happened after. I think the... Almost certainly, right, those crossed-off titles represent different stages of the book, right, as it's developing, as it's moving forward. And um, he... And they're probably fairly widely separated in time. The different titles, that is. There and back again is the title that he gives to it when it's just the story of his adventure. But then he keeps writing. 
Think about the things that have happened to Bilbo in the last 70 years, right? Think about when he met Aragorn and learned Aragorn's story. Um, think about some of the journeys that he has been on. Um, uh, he did go back to Erebor, right? He's doubtless visited Rivendell before and talked to the elves. Um, think of some of the lore that he has begun collecting and the poetry that he's written, right? I don't doubt that over the last 70 years, he's been writing that stuff. Um, he's been writing about that stuff in his book. And that's why he crossed, he did that first cross out, right? First it was called There and Back Again. And then he added, and what happens after, right? Um, and now, and I think originally, when he made that comment to Frodo during the council, I think that he, I suspect anyway, that he was still kind of thinking that that stuff, right? Frodo's journey um, was clearly a, a good story, right? Um, whole chapters of stuff. But maybe still in the what happened after? Had the ring been taken, you know, been like, say the council had decided to send the ring, uh, you know, back to the Grey Havens with Galdor or something, as would seem fairly wise. Um, had they done that, then Frodo and Bilbo, you know, ending their stories together in Rivendell, right? Ending in retirement in Rivendell. Like, it, it would have fit, right? Um, it all would have been um, what happened after, right? But when it becomes clear that Frodo is actually going to be the protagonist of a much bigger and even more important story that's coming afterwards, that's when he begins to start thinking of it as the next book, not as merely a continuation of the previous book. So anyway, I feel pretty convinced that when he says my book, he's not talking about his works of translation. Um, that, I think, is a separate scholarly endeavor. That, and he's been continuing his book at the same time. Right. So he's writing his story and what he's learned and doubtless including poems and songs that he's collected and things like that. Remember, well, remember ahead only a little bit. We'll see this in a, just a few weeks um, that he's going to tell Frodo to be on the lookout for such things. Right. Um, books are better when stuffed with random poetry at various points. And I think we can all attest to that. So um, anyway, so um, he's so I, I think that that book has been continuous. Um, and, uh, and that's what he's referring to when he says, helping me with my book. Cause his work, his book, obviously like what help does he need with his book? I think it's pretty clear what help he needs. Um, as <laughs> it was pretty clear what help Tolkien needed from Christopher, right? Especially when it came to the revising of the Silmarillion, help me take all of this stuff to use Bilbo's own word, right? And put it, put his notes in order, right? Help him to make a, uh, you know, a book out of it, right? Um, and uh, I think that's the help that he's looking for there. And of course, we need to make a start on the next book. So um, I don't. So when we get his translations from the Elvish at the end, I think that's quite separate from his book. Though, of course, in the end it turns out to be, very likely, um, the great work that Bilbo did, right? His sort of great, you know, his, his most significant literary contribution to the future was probably his translations from the Elvish, which are almost certainly the Silmarillion, 
right? Even Christopher admitted uh, in the, uh, you know, in the the prologue to the preface to uh, the Book of Lost Tales uh, that he probably could have just stated explicitly that uh, the Silmarillion was Bilbo's translations from the Elvish. Um, but anyway, um, so he gives the translations from the Elvish uh, to Sam at the end. But again, that I think is, is a, a separate scholarly work, less private than his book, the one that, you know, Mary boasted of getting a glimpse of once, right? Um, totally different thing. Whereas, you know, he was, the translations from the Elvish are the kinds of things that he was teaching to, you know, pediatric Sam, right? Uh, as Sam was learning his letters uh, and memorizing the Gilgalad poem and that kind of thing. Um, but, um, yeah, now, Bart, it is true that there are very few songs and uh, poems stuffed in to the Silmarillion. Not none, but there are very few. Um, and again, actually, I would take that as an interesting... Um, that would seem to me to fit with what I was describing. It's the Red Book. It's his book where he keeps bunches of fascinating things that he sees along. It's his book is going to be way more eclectic, right? Um, than this work of translation that he's packaging up. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, anyway, so that's my answer to the question about the, uh, what does he mean by my book? And it was an excellent question, so thank you, Bill, for uh, uh, putting that to us. Um, All right. Time passes. Let's do it. For a while, the hobbits continued to talk and think of the past journey and of the perils that lay ahead. But such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have any power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each good day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. So the days slipped away, as each morning dawned bright and fair, and each evening followed cool and clear. But autumn was waning fast. Slowly the golden light faded to pale silver, and the lingering leaves fell from the naked trees. A wind began to blow chill from the misty mountains to the east. The hunter's moon waxed round in the night sky and put to flight all the lesser stars. But low in the south, one star shone red. Every night, as the moon waned again, it shone brighter and brighter. Frodo could see it from his window, deep in the heavens, burning like a watchful eye that glared above the trees on the brink of the valley. Okay. Um... And, uh, yeah, uh, Matt, it's pretty cool, isn't it? That, um, that describes the next few months <laughs> of, uh, what we actually are in, right? Um, we're a little bit behind that. Um, it was, uh, it was October, of course, when he arrived in, uh, uh, in Rivendell. What was, what gave me chills, uh, Bjorning was, uh, the reenactment that we did of the Weathertop attack at, um, Middlemoot. You know, we just decided we would do that at Middlemoot. And by chance, it was on the same day, <laughs> the same calendar day of uh, um, of the attack on Weathertop. 
but uh, anyway. Um, okay, so um, big picture, big picture here. Um, thinking back to the discussion we were having last time um, of the passage of time, and I was arguing that I do not see when Bilbo says I can't count days in Rivendell, I was arguing that I do not see this as evidence that time is messed with, the perception of time passing is messed with in Rivendell in the same way that it's messed with in Lothlorien. And I think that this um, passage, I think, shows that really, really clearly, right? Um, let's start... I'm going to do it backwards today. Let's start with the second paragraph. So the days slipped away, as each morning dawned bright and fair, and each evening followed cool and clear. Um, remember, remembering ahead, in Lothlorien, they can't even remember days passing at all, right? They don't have that experience here. The days are slipping away. One day is passing another. The days are slipping away in that way that is described in the beginning of chapter four of The Hobbit, right? Where days that are, um, uh, you know, uh, days that are good to spend and times that are good to have are soon over, right? So the days are slipping by, but um, but they're aware of them. Not only are, are they aware of those days, but autumn was waning fast. Slowly the golden light faded to pale silver and the lingering leaves fell from the naked trees. They're keenly aware of the passing of time, right? It's not distressing, right? Um, but it's, um, yeah, exactly, Trifle. That's exactly it. In Lothlorien, Sam can remember about five days at, at most out of a month. Um, we're certainly not getting that here. And, and you'll remember what triggers that whole discussion about the passage of time in Lothlorien is when the crescent moon rises. And Sam's like, what the heck? How is it a crescent moon? Um, uh, Because he remembers what the moon was before they entered, and it's like, we were never in there a whole month. But the moon is exactly one of the things that they are aware of, right? They see the lingering leaves falling from the naked trees. A a wind begin to blow chill from the misty mountains to the east, Right, they they feel the oncoming of winter. The hunter's moon waxed round in the night sky and put to flight all the lesser stars. They are very aware of the moon and of its progress. Right, they watch the hunter's moon, the full moon in October, um, waxing in the night sky. Right, they watch it grow and grow day by day. Um, so they're aware of the passage of time. They're not having anything, as far as I can see, it's not anything like the experience that they were describing from Lothlorien. Um, now, I had said last time that... Um, well, okay, hang on, before I get to that. How I would describe this, um, does it give you the impression of... Um, Almost like a, 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 a time-lapse film, right? Doesn't it almost sound like that? Um, as the days are slipping away, each day bright and restful and peaceful, um, unmarked by 
you know, deadly danger or whatever, um, they cease to pay attention to the individual days. And what do they pay attention to instead? They pay attention to seasons, right? To the waxing and waning of the moon. That becomes the new rhythm of their life, right? Um, when, um, when you're focused on things, right? When you've got stuff to do, when you're, um, uh, you know, then you're focusing on every hour, right? Every day is its own drama. That's not what's happening here, right? Um, the days are all, they're slipping away and they're all going together. But the narrative now becomes bigger. They're just stepping back from it, right? Um, they're not aware, they're not thinking about you know, the passing of the hours in each given day, they're focused instead upon the changing of the seasons. Now, of course, in part, that's due to the fact that they're anticipating the departure, right? And so they're thinking about the larger passage of time. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. And I agree with everybody who is saying how lovely this sounds and how desirable it would be. Uh, to experience something like this. Um, Bjorning was just saying, can uh, you adults out there imagine being free of the sense of urgency that comes with adulting? It does, indeed, I agree, sound utterly, um, sound utterly lovely. And as, uh, um, as uh, Doro was just saying earlier, um, it sounds like a kid's experience of summer vacation so often. Right. Though my own experience of summer vacation was much more Lothlorian-esque, really. Um, um, I could swear that was never a full month. Um, I could have said almost every year. Um, yes, both Kit and Nancy say uh, retirement. Yes. Um, yes. I, uh, I wonder. I wonder. Um, but... Um, <laughs> I wonder. I don't think I'm ever going to have that a retirement experience. I don't see myself stopping what I do. But anyway, um, I mean, after all, we're going to still have the return of the king to get through. Um, anyway, um, it is hard to retire from Tolkien professoring. That's 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 actually true. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, I love the way that this paragraph captures that sense of peace, right? Um, exactly the kind of longing that so many of you are feeling towards this kind of peace, this kind of restfulness. Um, and also, this is where now going back to what I started to say before, um, last time I was talking about how I was arguing or suggesting that Bilbo's not counting days is due not only to just like some kind of influence upon him, or rather that what the effect had been was to give him something more of an elvish perspective on time. And I'm wondering if that's not what we're hearing here as well, that all of them are being given that in a sense, because notice elves are not unaware of things. They celebrate things. We've seen that all the time. From Tra-la-la-la... I mean, in The Hobbit, it's very clear, right? From tra la la lale all the way down to um, uh, the delight and enjoyment of the sound that barrels make when they fall into water, right? All of those things. The, the wood elves, you know, the elves that we see in different places in The Hobbit take delight 
in all of these things, small things as well as big things, right? And I think we can get a, a taste of that here as well. The days are slipping away, but notice, each morning dawned bright and fair, and each evening followed cool and clear. It's not that they've not noticed them. They have, right? Every morning, they delight in the bright, fair dawn, and every evening, they delight in the cool, clear evening, right? Um, and yet, they do slip away, and yet not one of the, you know, they, they're, they're not counting days. They're not focusing on the days. It, the very enjoyment of the mornings and the evenings of every day, you know, leads them towards the, the, the broader enjoyment of the waxing of the, of the, the hunter's moon, right? Of the waning of the autumn, right? Uh, and the changing of the quality of the light, golden light faded to pale silver. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, that this is... Um, I'm not, you know... I don't know for sure that he is attempting to describe a... Um, um, that he's attempting to describe an elvish... Experience, but that's what it sounds like, right? Um, now, there is that southern star. But wait, 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 wait. Before we talk about that, let's go back to paragraph one. Let's talk about paragraph one, then we'll come back to the red star. For a while, the hobbits continued to talk and think of the past journey and of the perils that lay ahead. But such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have any power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each good day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. And again, that sounds like the elvish perspective, doesn't it? Taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. And as I've said before, as I said in my Hobbit book, this is what I love about the tra la song, right? It's what we can see in the elves. It's what we see throughout elvish poetry from one end of the Hobbit to the next, right? Whenever we see it. Um, delight. Delight in simple things. They take pleasure in every meal that they have and in every word that they hear and in every song that they hear and sing, right? This is, um, this is what they do, right? This is how they spend their time. This is the perspective that they're given, right? And there is clearly power at work here. You see the key word, right? He's not implying that there's magic at work here. He's stating it, right? Expressly. You see the word? See the important word there? What's the word that Tolkien uses to say magic is happening here? 
those who know the Gospels in the King James will have an advantage here because it's the same word the Gospel, uh, the King James translation of the Gospels use when they describe um, uh, Jesus' power and virtues. Yeah, yeah, virtue. That's it. Yeah, his miracles, I was going to say, and I said virtue instead. Virtue, exactly. The word virtue means the ability to do something. Um, this is an, an old use of the word vir virtue. We only ever use the word, word virtue as an opposite of the word vice, which we don't use anymore, except in a drug bust context, in which case it's kind of different anyway. Um, there is a virtue in it. Um, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about from the New Testament. If you know the New Testament, you may remember the story um, when Jesus is walking through a crowd of people and the woman who has the, um, uh, the, the, the bleeding issue, right, um, touches him, touches the hem of his garment, um, and she's healed as soon as she touches him. And Jesus stops and says, who touched me, right? And the disciples are like, dude, everybody touched you. What are you, what are you talking about? Um, and Jesus says in the King James, I perceive that virtue has gone out of me, right? Meaning like, I pout, something just happened. I can tell. Like a miracle was just done, right? Fess up if a miracle just happened to you, right? Um, and um, so anyway, that's the sense in which Tolkien is using the word virtue here. But such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell. And you will notice in other places, uh, Tolkien will say, um, you know, but such virtue was in it that. And what he, the word virtue in that context is a synonym for power. Such power is in it. And power meaning the potentiality to bring something about. That's what virtue means in that sense. It's almost like potential energy. Um, um, yes, virtue comes up with athalas. Exactly. Some are dried, they're dried and some of their virtue is gone. Exactly. That's precisely the same usage. That's just right. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, so... Yeah. Um, effective power... Um, Gindaluan, Gildaluan, yeah, sure. I can live with that. Again, again it's, 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 to me, it's almost like potential energy, right? Um, and that's not quite right because it's too inert. Um, it's not that kind of an inert force and everything. But, um, but yeah, the, the, um, capacity to do something, right? That's what virtue means. So when he says, such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell, he's not talking about like, its moral choices. It says that's not a moral statement. Um, again, that's not virtue as the opposite of vice. Such was the virtue of the land of... Such was the power of the land of Rivendell. Um, the land of Rivendell had the ability to do this, to do... What does it do? It, it makes fear and anxiety lift from their minds. They are being acted on by the virtue of the land of of Rivendell. He does not in this paragraph explicitly say that the virtue of the land of Rivendell derives from Elrond's ring. But I think that's pretty clear. Um, that what we are seeing here is a pretty clear pointing to the fact that this is how Elrond uses his ring in Rivendell.
Such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell, that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. How does that work? Fear and anxiety are lifted from their minds. Notice first, before we go on to that, notice the transition into it. For a while, the hobbits continued to to talk and think of the past journey. Now, this is the transition out of the previous paragraph, right? Um, um, Where they've just been talking, right? We end with Sam's um, polyglum comment, right? And then for a while, the hobbits continued to talk, which makes it sound like that day, right? Um, Like for a while, like for another hour or two, maybe, the hobbits continued to talk and think of the past journey, right? Um, And of the perils that lay ahead. It may also be in that first clause that he's pointing beyond that. Doubtless they did. did. That wasn't the end of the discussion that day, right? And it probably was not the last discussion that they had over the next several weeks about the past journey, their journey to Rivendell, and of the perils that lay ahead. Um, But what's happening? Remember, um, uh, oh, thank you, JJ. JJ was looking up some more examples. Those are exactly, that's exactly right. Um, Whether by some virtue in these sheaths or because of the spell that lay on the mound, um, the blade seemed untouched by time. Yes. Um, it has great virtues. That is about Athalas again, but over such a wound, its healing powers may be small. Notice how he actually uses the word virtue and powers as fu- functional synonyms in that in that sentence. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. Um, hang on, Matt. I'll come back to that in a second. Um because there are a couple questions to be asked, but let's let's not jump ahead. I already started jumping ahead, my own fault, um, to the cause of it. Let's instead look at the look at the virtue, right? Look at the effect. Um, again, he's talking about how they continue to talk and think of the past and of the journey of the perils that lay ahead. And remember, in the scene that we've just that w- this sentence, this phrase, this clause, rather, is trans- transitioning out of. The whole concern was. What is Frodo's state of mind going to be, right? Um, is he going to despair um, as he thinks about um, the past journey, his literally scarring experience in the previous journey where he was practically wraithified, or maybe he would be thinking of the past even before the journey, right? And thinking wistfully about what he's lost. That wouldn't be good either. And of the perils that lay ahead. There's lots of danger here for Frodo. Um, for his own, the state of, of his mind, the state of his will as he is moving forward. Um, and we saw that being dramatized. We saw both Bilbo and Gandalf apparently quite sensitive to the state of Frodo's mind and attempting to help him, attempting to manage this. But such is the virtue of the land of Rivendell that all fear and anxiety is lifted from their minds. So how does that work? Does that mean that they stop thinking about it, right? You just you stop thinking about scary things and anxiety-inducing things? No. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have any power over the present. The future was not forgotten, but it ceased to have any power over the present. I love that phrase, that sentence, 
is, well, I was about to say it's a gorgeous sentence. I don't mean it's especially gorgeous from like a syntactic standpoint or something or particularly melodious, but as a, as a concept, it's a beautiful, beautiful concept, right? Um, fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety, both of them, are premised on the future having power over the present, right? Fear and anxiety, two different flavors, right, of concern about the future, right? And if you are in the grip of fear or in the grip of anxiety, you are absolutely allowing the future. The future is having power over your present, right? That's what's happening, right? Um, you're not necessarily in any danger right then, but you might become in danger, right? Um, uh, a bad thing is not currently happening, but you're concerned that a bad thing is going to happen, right? And so it exerts power over the present, right? Um, and that the virtue of the land of Rivendell breaks the power that the future has over the present. Doesn't make you forget. Doesn't change your mind about things. Right? They're not being brainwashed or something, right? But they are empowered to enjoy the present without um, to enjoy the present without letting the future boss it around, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Arden Crayon, I agree. Um, Arden Crayon says, this doesn't seem like magic so much as a natural consequence of resting in a comfortable house in a beautiful natural setting surrounded by friends and well-wishers. Uh, yeah. Yes, in a sense. Right. That is to say, the effect that it's having, it's not a, a strange one. It's not an unnatural one. Um, I think we've all been there. Like if you've ever had a really good restful vacation, you know that you have to go back to work eventually. Right. You know that your normal routine is going to re return. But if you're in a if you're in a place uh, like a physical place and a mental place, right, a spiritual place where you can rest. And you can just, you can put yourself there, right? Where you're enjoying the present and not letting what's going to happen in a few days or a couple weeks or whatever. Um, get, yeah, I, I hope we've all experienced that at some time or other. But that's the whole point here, I think, anyway. It's not that the virtue of the land of Rivendell creates an altogether unknown thing, right? Um, but what it does is it um, stabilizes it, right? Um, and I agree, Kit, that a restful place does not automatically mean resting. I mean, how many times has this happened to you? Or how many times have you seen this happen to someone else, right? When they get so worried about what's coming up next that they can't enjoy the moment, Right. Um, whether it's a small thing, like something that's going to happen in a few hours and so you can't enjoy the time right now. Or, I mean, this this is um, um, this is a is a common 
phenomenon, right? Um, uh, <laughs> Bjorning says, like every Sunday night for me. Yeah, that's 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 the problem, right? That's the problem. Um, uh, it's a frequent problem, right? And um, as I think it was Kit was saying, um, there's um, just because you're in a restful place doesn't mean automatically that you're resting, right? Um, so yes, such is the virtue of the land of Rivendell that it happens, right? The, this peace is given to them. This peace is brought to them. All of them have this experience, even apparently Frodo, um, who does not forget. Manage. I mean, imagine this. He has not forgotten the quest to come. That, yeah, I'm supposed to take this enormously now kind of, you know, undertake this scary quest of taking the radioactive ring, you know, into the heart of the enemy's realm and destroying it. Um, he hasn't forgotten that. And yet, that idea doesn't have any power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each good day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. Notice how it keeps getting smaller and smaller, right? Health and hope grew strong, content with each good day, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song, right? Of which there are presumably multiple words and songs uh, per meal, right? Many meals per day um, and many days over the course of their stay, during which health and hope are growing strong in them. Um, all of this, right, the way that it works, it's premised upon what it's drilling down to, right? To take pleasure in every word, which enables you to take pleasure in every song, which enables you to take pleasure in every meal, which enables you to enjoy every day. Let the present rule, right? Um, yeah, yeah um, dude, that's not me. Um, I... Uh, have been thinking about that moment in the screw tape letters too, and I'm trying not to talk about it. Um, where C.S. Lewis talks about the present and the relationship between the present and the future. So I'll allude to it. Sorry, the reason I'm trying not to talk about it is that it's, um, it is a really sloppy habit, and it's one I have um, often chided people for before, um, and so I don't want to be a hypocrite. Um, that is, it's often very tempting to... Um, illustrate an idea in Tolkien with something from Lewis or vice versa or worse that that's okay like that's okay what that's not a bad thing to do necessarily because um, they did sometimes agree about things what is a bad habit though and that you must never do is to make an argument about something in Tolkien and support it with a quote from Lewis right as if they shared a brain right as if they're like one single author that nah, you can't do um but um, anyway, um, so yeah, yeah. Um, how often can you explain Tolkien with a Lewis quote? People do it a lot, Bjorn in Exile, a lot. And it's very natural that it should be because the two of them 
agreed about a lot of things, and Lewis explained stuff a lot more, right? Um, Tolkien points to things in his fiction. Lewis spells it out in his nonfiction prose. Um, Often they do agree, but often they're not talking about exactly the same thing. And so a lot of times people want to reach for one of those delightfully expository paragraphs from Lewis in order to... to, um, you know, support an idea that they're seeing in Tolkien, and you just you got to be careful. Um, uh, you got to be careful about that. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, no, I'm not saying you can't find connections. Of course, obviously there are connections, and again, you can even it's even okay to talk about like a place. You know, when you feel like they're both pointing to a similar thing, it's okay. It's okay. okay but I just said you got to be careful because it's it can create bad habits if you're not cautious. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Now, let me go back, Matt, to the point that you were making before. Matt was questioning, can we be sure that this is definitely a, an elven ring issue? That the virtue of the land of Rivendell indeed derives from Elrond's ring. Um, Can we conclude, I would say, sort of, (laughs) I would say very, very decisively, very decisive sort of there. Um, Do I, do we know Elrond has been using his ring? Yes. Has he been using his ring in Rivendell? Yes. Is there any reason at all to think that some of the virtue of Rivendell does not derive... No, I mean, I think it's pretty clear. But, but Matt, I think you're right to say, can we say that the phenomenon that's being described in this paragraph is all down to the ring? That if Elrond had never been given a ring of power, Rivendell wouldn't be a bit like this, right? No, I don't think so. There, I think you're right. Um, that places where uh, this is, in part, I think, an elvish thing, right? Um and Erd, yeah, the land has a virtue of its own. Yes, yes. I, I think also in part the, that um, the land very likely has had virtue imparted in it by the fact that the elves have been there for so long. Um, so, um, Rowan, it does smell like elves, right? I mean, this is a, there is elf saturation, in this land, right? You can smell it a mile away. Um, and um, yeah, exactly, uh, Chris. That's just what Matt was thinking, uh, remembering ahead to what's going to be said about Holland later on, right? Um, that uh, the land will remember the elves uh, that have uh, that have that have been there. Um, and um, Hrothgar, yeah, you can speculate like maybe one of the reasons that he chose this land is that there was already uh, you know, some kind of benevolent, you know, beneficent virtue in the land here, and that's why Elrond was like hmm, yes, I think this shall be my hidden vow. Of all of the valleys, of which there are doubtless several, um, this is the one that I choose because there was already some virtue in it. Very possible. Very possible. Um, so, uh, so yes, so I do agree um, that um, we cannot be certain that 100% of this effect 
is brought about by Elrond's ring. Um, however, for my own part, I feel fairly confident that Elrond's ring is certainly, at the very least, is involved in amplifying this effect, right? And the primary reason I think that is the health and hope grew strong in them sentence. Um, Elrond is a great healer. He is the greatest of the healers in the modern world, we are told. Uh, you know, Aragorn is going to say that. And um, that the virtue of his land is so well calculated. I mean, this is this side of the sea, right? Um, you know, because it's the last homely house east of the sea. Um, it's This is perhaps another sense in which it's the last homely house east of the sea. Um, because this side of Elvenholm, it is the perfect place for... Um, for recuperation, right? Um, for uh, convalescence. There is healing. Not just physical healing, but spiritual healing. It's not just health that grows strong in them, but hope that grows strong in them, right? Um, and that seems to me very calculated um, to... Um, uh, seems very calculated to accomplish what Elrond wants to accomplish. And I think that that's, that to me suggests that it's his direct and purposeful application of the Elven Ring that has led to this state of affairs. Or again, at least at the very minimum, amplified it. Um, I do think that just the High Elves living here for as long as they have would confer some virtue upon the land of Rivendell, um, even if he didn't have a ring. But I think that the ring amplifies it. I think that the ring very greatly um, uh, very greatly increases that. Um, and Bruinir, you're right. It does make you realize how badly Frodo was hurt at the end. Even Rivendell can't heal him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, yes. Yes. Um, so, um, there was one other follow-up I was going to do to that. Health and hope. Um, yeah, last thing. Just back to this concept of them being given, while they're there, a kind of elvish perspective, right? That, too, strikes me as a natural element of one of the elven rings, right? Um, what is the point of the rings of power when Celebrimbor sets out to make rings of power? What does he do? What does it mean for him to make rings of power? His intention is to enable them to accomplish more perfectly those things which they, the elves, want to accomplish anyway. Right. He is trying to uh, up their game in doing the things that elves want to do. And how do you do it? Well, how do you do anything? Right. Um, like when you make something, every time we see something being made, especially something which hobbits might call magic things, um, 
it is something of the will, something of the spirit, something of the um, even attitude of the maker that goes into it, right? Sauron's will to dominion goes into the ring and the, you know, the adverse effects, the corrupting effects that the ring has on others is because it's because the spirit of Sauron is in that ring, right? Um, Not that he's in communication with it, but again, like that part of him, which is, which wants those things and does that thing and thinks about things that way is in that ring, right? What did Celebrimbor put into the Elvish rings? Well, he, Elvish stuff, right? Distilled Elvish stuff. Um, And what do we see them doing? Um, Bringing health and hope. Um, Preserving things unstained. Um, Bringing hope and visions and even memory. Yeah, all of those things we see being done or we're told about, they're done by the Elvish rings. And those are all Elvish things, right? Um, those are all, again, like those kind of like distillations of Elvish desire, of Elvish virtue, um, of Elvish spirit. Um, and so therefore, what would I expect in a place which, where the power of the Elven ring is being employed in this kind of way? Um, I would expect for those who are there to have a kind of elvish experience. Um, I think we're going to see them have another kind of elvish experience when they get to Lothlorien. But, um, uh, but I think in both cases, they're having, they're having one. Um, and Nathan, I agree that this use of the elven ring seems healthier than Galadriel's. I agree. Uh, but that's not very surprising, as Galadriel, I think, is very clearly the least healthy of the wielders of the elvish rings, right? I mean, uh, yeah, she's the one who's going to come closest to giving into the ring. She's the one who's, I mean, she's, she's, she's got problems. Galadriel has issues, right? Galadriel has issues and issues of long standing. And um, they are not completely in the past. Um, so, um, so yeah, you know, um, uh, we'll see that. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, <laughs> she's married to Kelleborn. I, that's not one of her issues, uh, I don't think. Um <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, uh, anyhow, okay. Last point. Back to the star. But low in the south, one star shone red. Every night, as the moon waned again, it shone brighter and brighter. Frodo could see it from his window, deep in the heavens, burning like a watchful eye that glared above the trees on the brink of the valley. It's pretty clear, at the very least, what this is making Frodo think of, right? Um, The red star shining in the south. Um, 
burning like a watchful eye, glared above the trees on the brink of the valley. Um, Eric Numenor, great question. What have we encountered in this of the eye so far? Um, yeah, hang on a second. Hang on. Before we pursue that, Matt, I want to do your point because it's a real, it's really interesting. Um, he says this discussion of the rings is getting us back to the idea of virtue, one that helps me understand the rings of power. It's a portion of their virtue that passes into the rings for good or ill, dominion, rope making, the magnification of the elves. Virtue is in some ways infinitive or self-restoring in the individual. If you want to make it a bigger thing, you pass your virtue into the ring, a passing of real personal power into an object. It then has the virtue within it in a way the elven rings don't. Um, yes, yes. Um, I do think, um, Matt, the other thing that really helps me with the idea of like making magic, the passage that I always think of, um, is uh, when... It's Haldir, isn't it? Who's giving them their um, their cloaks and says that we put the thought of all that we love into all that we make. It's not just yourself, right? When you're an elf and you're making something which a hobbit would consider a magical item, um, a work of craft, you're not just putting yourself, your own virtue, into it. You are also putting some of your love and thought of other things into it, right? Um, and uh, Sauron's approach was different. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, yes. Yes. By the way, I like to think about that when we get to Coney Stew. <coughs> Sorry. I think that uh, Sam put some of himself into the Coney Stew as well a little bit. But anyway, never mind. Um, we'll get there. Uh, so, is this the first reference to the Burning Eye? Back to the... Um, um, uh, back to the... Uh, the star here. Somebody pointed out, is there any evidence that anybody but Frodo can see this? I'm pretty sure they can, as I'm pretty sure it's the planet Mars that he's seeing. Yes, it's called a star. Plants were always called stars. Um, wandering stars is what they're called. Um, so that doesn't signify. Um, uh, I think it's probably Mars that they're seeing um, in the southern sky uh, in this season. Um, but it's not that Frodo, I think, is the only one who can see it. I think it's that Frodo is the one who gives it this significance. When he sees this star in the south shining red, it seems to him to be glaring at him above the trees on the brink of the valley 
burning like a watchful eye. Um, okay, so um, I say, well, Michael, I'm not sure I agree. Michael says, if it's just Mars, it seems odd to mention. I don't think it's odd. Like it fits exactly into the context. In fact, it's the natural, it's the next natural progression, right? Um, from morning and evening to the seasons, right? Autumn waning fast and winter coming in, the hunt, the moon waxing in its monthly cycle, and Mars comes by in its annual cycle, right? So um, all of these, now it's possible that it could be another star, or it could be something like Aldebaran. That's possible. Um, I think it's more likely to be a planet, um, and therefore, presumably, either Saturn or Mars, which are the only two that look colored uh, to the naked eye, probably Mars. Um, but um, uh, is Mars and, and mentioned anywhere else in the books? No. Is Mars associated? We have any reason to think that Mars is associated with war uh, in Middle Earth? No. Um, do we have any mythological stories about Mars in any of the Silmar of the Middle Earth writings? No, not that I can remember. Where Mars fits into the medieval model, Green Great Dragon, that I can tell you. Uh, Mars was in Fortuna Minor. Uh, that is to say, it is the lesser bad thing, <laughs> right? Um, it is a sign of ill omen. Yeah, it pops up every year, so it's not like, oh, it's autumn, oh no, that's uh, misfortune strikes again. Like, it's, it's not that, but its influence is, uh, uh, is bad. Um, the worst, of course, is Saturn. Um, that's in Fortuna Major. Um, and the influence of Saturn brings about things like the downfall of kingdoms and um, earthquakes and stuff like that. Um, uh, Mars just brings things like falling down and breaking your neck, you know. Um, uh, but um, anyway, yeah, it's... Uh, we're, we're, we don't have anything. We don't have anything about the mythological associations with Mars in Middle-earth. In fact, as far as I can tell, this passage is the only one I can remember in all of Tolkien. Um, at least in all of Middle-earth. Sorry, I'm just thinking about Rover Random's trip to the moon and if there's any reference to Mars or any of the other planets in Rover Random. But I don't think in any of his Middle-earth writings um, Tolkien ever talks about Mars. Um, so we have no... So, except for this. Except for this. And I... I if it were part of a... Like, Aldebaran is part of a constellation, right? Um, unless I'm totally forgetting Aldebaran is part of Taurus and thus very near Orion who features fairly prominently uh, in the skies of Middle-earth um, but um, uh, but anyway I, it, it's part of the constellation right um, and I don't I don't think so um, now GDC you are absolutely correct it is very unusual for Tolkien to associate celestial bodies with anything negative. Totally agree. And by the way, again, 
I don't see any reason to believe that it is, generally speaking, associated with anything negative. I think this is Frodo. I think that what we are hearing here is that we are not being, I don't think, that we are being given a, a this sort of new glimpse into Middle-earth mythology in this passage. I think what we're being given a glimpse into is um, Frodo's state of mind, right? <clears throat> the future has ceased to have any power over the present, but the future is not forgotten. And the important thing, I think, here, there's a kind of um, abstractness. This is why I think this is just a sort of free association that Frodo is making himself. Um, that he is associating the this star in the south with the enemy, <clears throat> the enemy that is with his destination. It's growing. Brighter and brighter it's growing. As, no doubt, the thought of the enemy towards which he is going to be carrying the ring um, is growing larger and larger, looms larger and larger in Frodo's thought, right? It's, he can see it from its window, deep in the heavens, burning like a watchful eye that glared above the trees on the brink of the valley. It's in the south. Right. It's in the direction that he said. So when does he see it? He sees it when he's looking south. What is he thinking about when he's looking south? He's thinking about his journey. Right. He's thinking about his journey and its horrible destination. And as he looks south out of his window, thinking about his journey and his horrible destination, he sees this one red star just above the horizon as if it's peaking. Right. As if it's stealing a peak into Rivendell, as if it's snooping on him. Right, looming there, waiting for him and growing brighter and brighter, waxing brighter and brighter as the hunter's moon waxes, putting to flight all the lesser stars. The moon is aggressive here too, and that red star in the south is aggressive as well. Um, again, do I think that this means that you know, is he seeing the eye of Sauron? No, no, no. He's seeing Mars, I think. My opinion, it's Mars that he's seeing. Um, but he's thinking of the enemy. Um, deep in the heavens. Deep in the heavens. Um, this reminds me of... Um, This reminds me of um, various Silmarillion passages. Places I've just been reading the Children of Hurin. I'm almost through it. <laughs> I like the Children of Hurin, but it is so grim. It um, affects my spirits. Um, I can't read it for long stretches. I have to take it in small doses. But um, there are several places. There in the Athrobath, which I've been thinking about for Silmarillion film project reasons, um, where they talk about 
their enemy. They talk about Morgoth, right, back in the first age. And occasionally, when some of them are going to be like, so, um, you remember this is one of the gods that we're fighting, right? Probably, we're probably not winning that long term, right? Like, I, I doubt we can really take the open field against him and expect to win, right? Frodo seems to me to be having similar kinds of thoughts, right? Deep in the heavens. He is undertaking, he has undertaken to try to bring about the downfall of Sauron, right? One of the, he's been around for thousands of years, right? I mean, yeah, he's small potatoes compared to Morgoth, no question, right? But still, Frodo's small potatoes compared to Baron and Luthien and, you know, uh, even Turin and the others in the Hall of Fame, right? Um, uh, yeah. Um, he sees this star deep in the heavens, right? And it begins, he, be, he seems to associate it more and more with the enemy, his enemy, watching him, waiting for him, glared above the trees on the brink of the valley. Um, this is a fascinating companion passage to Sam's star in Mordor, right? Frodo in Rivendell looks up and sees a glaring, burning red star, which makes him think of the watchful eye, the malignant watchful eye of Sauron. And his peace in that peaceful place is punctured by the knowledge of the threat to come, the awareness of what a big deal and what a hopeless quest it seems like that he's on, right? Sam, of course, later on, from within Mordor itself, in the heart of the enemy's realm, is going to look up into the sky and see the Star of Erendil and realize that the shadow is only a small and passing thing, right? Um... They're in very different places in every sense, right? Frodo and Sam at those points. Um, and uh, I think that's... I never thought of that before, but I think that's a really, really interesting thing. This, by the way, these... Um, what is it? Three sentences? Classic example of a passage in The Lord of the Rings that... Doesn't this happen to you guys a lot? when having these discussions together, you come to a passage like this and you're like, that's in the Lord of the Rings? I've always just like, like you just, whoosh, it just, you just slipped past you, right? That passage has slipped by me so many times. I've never really stopped and thought about the one star shining red in the south. Nor about the fact that this does seem to be the beginning, Right? of the introduction of 
the whole concept of the Eye of Sauron. Um, does um, does anybody? So, did anybody find any examples? We've had Bombadil's eye seen through it, right? In a kind of foreshadowing, comical, vague and alarming, right? Comical but alarming, um, of his blue eye shining through the ring as he holds it up, right? Um, yes, very good, Green Great Dragon. Thank you. Bilbo says the ring, he felt the ring was like an eye looking at him. Good, good. Yes, Matt was just recalling that same thing. Okay. We, the readers, have had that, right? A vague association between the ring and an eye. Uh, a, a simile. Bilbo's simile. A simile that Bilbo gropes for when he's trying to explain what it's been like. The feeling of the ring, right? Um, and then we get Bombadil's eye, right? Um, oh, good, Jordan. Under the... Uh, Good. Yeah, it's just exactly the passage that Jordan was saying. And if he often uses the ring to make himself invisible, he fades. He becomes in the end invisible permanently and walks in the twilight under the eye of the dark power that rules the ring. Good. Good. Um, there we have a, a reference to Sauron's eye, right? You know, that is a metaphorical thing. Um, I have to admit, when I first watched the Peter Jackson movies when they first came out. I had no idea. Part of me, when I was watching the Jackson films, was going through and being like, that's going to take a lot of explaining, <laughs> right? Like, I was kind of going through and thinking about, like, all the things I'm going to have to explain or re-explain. Um misconceptions I was anticipating that people were going to come away from the film with. Like, one that I was correct about, for instance, was the origin of orcs. The whole slime pit thing and Saruman's speech that he does, which was really confusing. And I'm like, oh man, people are going to be super confused about where orcs came from now. Right? Which is confusing enough. Goodness knows. Right? Anyway, um, I never saw it come... But there were several things that I would had I known it, spend the next 20 years of my life explaining or trying to correct misimpressions that the films had created. I never, one I never saw coming was that, like when I saw the big fiery eyeball in the Jackson films, it seemed fine to me. Like, okay, you know, like let's uh, literalize and make visual that metaphor. Like, it's kind of cool. It's kind of effective. I liked it. Um, and uh, um, that that people would come to think that Sauron was literally the form of a flaming eyeball, like that that's actually him. And that like that's Tolkien's concept of him. I never saw that one coming. <laughs> I never saw that one coming. But anyway. Um, uh, OK. So. The eye. Um, uh, 
Uh, Were there any other passages? Anybody else find any other I passages from uh, earlier in the fellowship, earlier before this? We've got the um, Bilbo's sensation of it being like an eye watching him. We have Gandalf's speaking of wraiths walking under the eye of he who rules the ring. Um, and then we have... Uh, um, Yeah. And then we have this passage, burning like a watchful eye, another simile, right? The first instance was a simile that Bilbo uses to try to capture his feeling what's been creeping him out about the ring recently, right? Um, and the this third time, it's another simile, which would seem to be trying to capture Frodo's sense of this ominous feeling that he's getting. His foreboding of the future, right? Um, uh, and in the middle, we have the eye being referred to by Gandalf. And there he's just... The way that he uses it there is is quite casual. Like it's just it's an idiom. Like that's a normal expression. Like under the eye of like this happening under the watchful eye of somebody or other, right? Like that doesn't even have to be a thing. It's not even it's not a simile. That's just that's just a, a figure of speech, right? Like while somebody is not just looking, but while somebody is watching you. But it associates that kind of watchfulness, right? Um, if you do something under someone's eye, it means they are watching you and they are watching you very carefully. Right. So that kind of watchfulness, right. Um, is, uh, um, that kind of watchfulness is, is associated with Sauron by Gandalf, right. By his use of that idiom. Um, but, um, this I think is the first time, therefore, that the eye is connected with burning, Burning like a watchful eye. Um, now we know, we will remember ahead, that the symbol of the eye, of the burning eye, is already a thing, right? Um, I mean, it's the symbol that Sauron uses. Orcs have it on their shields and such, right? So um, they... Um, uh, Yeah, anyway, um, so Frodo is not inventing it here. Like, it's not like, uh, you know, this is what Frodo thinks and it catches on later on. Um, no, rather, he is having a kind of, um, this is a something like foreknowledge, right? Um, Frodo intuits this thing, which it will turn out later, that Sauron has, in fact, actively... Um, adopted as his symbol, right? Um, yeah. Now, likely about, we don't know if Frodo already knows that the eye is the symbol of Sauron and so is, that's why he's pre, you know, I'm not trying to necessarily claim that this is like 
that Frodo, this proves that Frodo is prophetic, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to make any claim of that kind. I'm just saying, and Jordan, you're certainly right. He would definitely know by the time he wrote this part of the book. No question. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think that, um, uh, this makes, uh, but the way it functions in the narrative is as like, this is the first insight into that. Right. And that Frodo in his dread of what is to come, he experiences, um, he kind of intuits some of Sauron's nature of what Sauron is actually like. Right. As Bilbo does indeed. Right. With his, uh, comparison. He's right. There's a reason he thinks that the ring is like an eye watching him. Not because Sauron is literally in the form of an eyeball, um, but because that kind of scrutiny, that kind of watchfulness um, is very much part of the spirit of Sauron, characteristic of the spirit of Sauron. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. Um, I think we should end there. Uh, we will, um, next time, we will talk about the reports of the scouts uh, and begin the process of moving towards the, uh, uh, towards the departure from Rivendell. But, um, no, it's almost December. That's true. It's almost December. We're leaping forward to December um, next time. All right. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Um, we're going to, um, uh, we're going to, it's field trip time. So we're going to do our field trip and we're going to look at uh, Gundabad, uh, which is very recently released uh, by Standing Stone. Um, their, their depiction of Gundabad is really fascinating. So we're going to look at that tonight. Um, and uh, thanks for joining us. And I will see everybody else next week. But good evening, Valori. How are you? Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. I, uh, I'm excited to see more Gundabad today. Yeah, That's yeah, for sure. it's going to be good. So I think what we're going to do um, is uh, we're going to I think we're going to stable master it. Um, yes, because yes, we right. we're finding a paucity of milestones uh, up there uh, in the wells of Langflood so far. Um, so um, so yeah, so let's uh, let's head on up. We can. Um, we can stable master from Bree to, I always forget the name, the dwarf uh, name that begins with an A, uh, which is there. Hang on, it's in my notes. Anakurfu, yeah. Anakurfu, that's the one, yeah. Yep. So we'll, we'll, we'll go yeah, there and, like, the, and then we'll... Yeah, it's like Anak from the mummy movies. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and then we can, um, and then we can head to... Um, that would be the other stable. Yeah, to to we can we can use the stable master there to just head one step up. Okie dokie. All and right. uh, every time we talk about the the eye of Sauron in the sky, I always get that Alan Parsons project song stuck in my head. Wait, which one? Eye in the sky. It's called Eye in the oh, Sky. Oh, Eye in the Sky. Although, yeah, yeah. Although yeah. I personally think the song is about being a DM because you're telling people right. not to cry and to stop lying to you, and you're not changing anything for them. So. Right. Yeah. DMs, yeah. right? Right, pretty much. <laughs>
Yeah. I have to add that um, to my Tolkien playlist, I guess. <laughs> right. I I never thought of that song in that context. Okay. I have taking songs out of context. It's great. Like Halloween's coming up and I'm putting stuff in here like uh watching you know private eyes are watching you and uh every uh when you go when you walk away you take a piece of me with you i'd like that belongs on a halloween playlist because reasons <laughs> well for like uh zombie associations or something Probably. okay how else should i take it except wrong and badly right sure i understand uh, okay. okay, where is Anak Suleiman okay. or whatever? Uh, Anak Kurfu, there it is. All right, traveling. Off we go. Ah, uh, little day. Oh, sleep. There we go. Off we go. All right. So yeah, I apologize for the the scratchy voice. It's ragweed season over here, and uh, all right. I've been challenging, channeling my inner Melkor by hating everything nature created. Right, I see. Uh, kind of uh, uh, thinking about going about and establishing a desolation around you with uh, no green and growing things. Yeah, I could, I could deal with some desolation right now, honestly. I, can, I understand. There's, oh, that dwarf was like blending into the uh, uh, like barrels and stuff. Yeah, it's a goat-colored dwarf okay there he is all right so uh let's see where are we going to the will and uh, no El yeah uh no it's not wells of flying Fod. i keep saying that it's the elder slate is where we are yeah yeah that's what i could um, find it at this stage to uh zudrum don is that where we're going i think so zudrum don right yeah what uh, a ripoff it costs the same amount to go a quarter mile up the road from here as it took to get from Bree to here. Uh, yeah, like that's the problem with that's the problem with one rate shipping, you know. Yeah, I feel like I'm not getting my uh, my silver's worth here. Yeah, yeah. I need like a like a like a Lotro Metro card. Yeah, it's like it's it's like we we only paid for the the A and B zone. Right. Uh, but now we're going right. to the C zone, so we literally have to buy another card. Exactly. Okay. And uh, let's see what time. Oh, it's dawn again, isn't it? Yes. Mm. Excellent. So yeah, excited. it's always nice when daylight cooperates. Sure is. Okay, so. This over here is the hot. There we are. I want to. Stand out a little bit so that those uh, yeah, 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 columns yeah. aren't in the way. Okay, all right, here we are. Here we are. So now, so Valori, first thing we were noticing is that we get standard yield Angmarim architecture. Yeah. Right down in the in the like due west across the little mirror from us. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's so shiny though. And there's another one. Oh, I can't see it well from here. Down over to the right. Um, so there's a couple of those. We'll we'll try to explore those a little bit more thoroughly, but um Okay. Do we believe or do we suspect 
that Gundabad is meant, and this again in the Lotro context, because of course we have almost nothing about it within Tolkien's writings themselves. Um, Based on what we're seeing here visually, do we believe that Gundabad is meant to be by a third or maybe even a fourth dwarf tribe? Because this doesn't look like the same architecture that we've been seeing, such as that is like this building right next to us with the blue and gold, which Uh, is like the long beard stuff that we've seen, but somewhat different. I mean, we were speculating that this could be a third tribe, you know, a third dwarf clan uh, Mm -hmm. from this stuff. Um, But, um, but Gundabad doesn't look like any of those things. It definitely does not look like the long beards. I mean, those diamonds, there's just nothing like those diamonds and spires for crying out loud. We haven't seen spires anywhere. Uh, yeah, I mean, like from from like from 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 the black caps down, it looks like everything we've seen. But from like up is totally alien. Yeah, yeah. We have seen spires in Kelladul. Did they look like this though? Where did we see them? Kelladul in Erdluin way a million years ago. Ah. Uh. It's even specifically referred to as Spires of Kelladul. It's the location you can discover. Spires of Kelladul. Where the dower hands hang out. Oh, yes. down by the docks. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like the tips of these guys look like that. Like, oh, like Kelladul. Last... Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, like okay. the last three feet of these spires might look like the dwarven stuff, but like all of the diamond patterns and shapes, but I, I can't really see it from here. Is you think it looks like the sort of jasper red and green stone that they used? a little hard to tell with the atmosphere. And yes, Hrothgar, I agree. They had obelisks in Kelladul. Yeah. But like not the spires. Of- not spires at the top of towers. Yeah. Not that I recall. Nothing like, not like this. Yeah. Dwarf uh, the, architecture is not usually they even look pointy. Like, yeah, it's like... It's like, would, are these even habitable? Are they towers or are they just decoration? Just like, look at how much stone we have. Yeah, I think they're just decoration. I don't think there's, I mean, is there a viewing chamber in there? You know, I don't uh, know. If, if, if anyone could make it out of stone, it would be dwarves, but. Yeah. Yeah. I no, I mean, I, they seem to me totally decorative. I can't, from yeah. here anyway, I can't see, I mean, looking at the top of that, it looks solid. I don't see anything that looks like a walk around it, Yep. nor do I see anything that looks like windows inside it. It looks solid to me. It um, does remind me of sort of similar spires, but I've seen, but they were underground in Moria. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. that case, they'd almost be structural. Maybe. You know, like they like right. support spires or something right. like. Right. Possibly. But I've never seen anything like this. It just it seems incredibly un- undwarvish to be this. Well, and here's the other thing that seems undwarvish <laughs> to me. Right. Here's the other thing that seems undwarvish to me. All the windows. Look at all those windows. Yeah, that part looks more Angmarm. That part looks like all of the little white barracks we saw. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. In the in the sort of mockery of Gondor. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah. Harvey but has like, an interesting comment in Twitch chat, though. What's that? It says, the this is the original spot where Durin Father of the Longbeards first awoke. They would say that this is why the buildings are more unique as a quote-unquote holy site. Hmm. It does remind me of, like, in you know, uh, stone temples in, like, uh, you know, like Kuala Lumpur or something like that. Yeah, and we were talking about the uh, similarities between this and that... Um that Tibetan place. What was it again, JJ? You were talking, you gave us a picture last week, that Tibetan, huge Tibetan palace. Mm -hmm. um, especially the windows do kind of look like that. Um, so these would just be sort of glorifying Auli and all his glory, <laughs> all yeah, of that, the, right? The Potala palace. That's it. Part. Thank you. Ah, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. But here, here's the thing about windows. So, again, looking around behind. You notice what we don't see? Windows. windows. Of almost any kind. And that's been true of most of the dwarvish architecture that we've seen. Especially when, above ground. Especially above ground. Like, they will sometimes have you know, window slits and stuff like up in, uh, you know, the 21st hall, right? Letting light in as yeah. is described in the book. Um, yeah. Um, you know, but most of, um, most of the dwarf structures are dark some holes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, all of the light. I mean, it's like, you've got lots of small rooms and every single room, has its own window, right? I just, I don't, like, rows of windows? Rows of windows. Yeah. I don't think we've seen anywhere. Um, now, Emma Thorne, that's a really fascinating question. Um, do we see um, future dwarven architecture as a degradation or as advancements over time? Um, presumably, I mean, this is old, right? I mean, we know it was old. Old is old, old, old. Um, and we can see there's restoration underway. We can see scaffolding around some of the lesser spires down in the foreground. I would imagine a, at any given point there is always refurbishment to be done given the age of the site. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Probably rotates every couple hundred years. Yeah, yeah. But the... If it's old, old, old. So is the the theory in game that Gundabad was built by Durin? Yeah. That it's proto-Longbeard. Hmm. So this is the original Dwarvish architecture that we're look, mm -hmm. looking at? So that follows Tolkien's trend of having uh, technology be lost and darkening over time. Yeah. If that's mountain home. right, mountain if home. that's true, if we, ex I mean, again, within the framework of Lotro, right, we're, we're told that's what it is. But um, if this is how um, 
Yes, Hrothgar, that's exactly what I was thinking. If we're to understand that this is something like the first buildings ever built by dwarves, right? I mean, if that's yes. what we're talking about here, we're talking about Durin's awakening. Yeah. You know, Durin's original house. Then we have to think that this was the first. And what it suggests to me is exactly what Hrothgar was just suggesting, that dwarves weren't subterranean originally. Which doesn't scan with the origin story, but then the origin story was written by elves, so take that right. We're certainly stuff, getting it through the elves for sure. Um, but um, it, the other one is it—it it does imply that they, they, there is still some technology to be seen about concealment because a lot of their, we, we've, we've had many theories that they've have buildings closer to the surface, but a lot mm-hmm. of we know that they're very good at hiding their entrances and their windows. It's we've often contemplated that there are doors and windows we couldn't see on rock faces and stuff like that. So it could just be that at this point they hadn't had the technology on how to help cleverly conceal their, their dwellings just yet. Or had no need to yeah. or desire to because yeah. there was no, I mean, there was no threat, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yet. Uh, yeah, it, it looks very idyllic up here. It doesn't look mm-hmm. like a place that's under siege or. The only evidence in the text we get. So, I mean, in the uh, origin story of the dwarves in the Silmarillion, we get, um, you know, we're told that the dwarves are kind of put into storage underground, right? You know, it's in, well, it's at least indoors, right, where uh, they're made by Aule. Um, and then they're kind of put into storage underground. But that doesn't really tell us, like, what was, you know, where did Durin live after he woke up? Right? That doesn't yeah, tell us yeah. anything about that. Um, yeah. The only place that I can think of where we get any kind of... Um, um, you know, reference to this, um, to the ancient, ancient dwarves is from the Moria song, right? Um, yeah. Where yeah. Durin dwelt and walked alone. Um, and until the discovery of the mirror mirror and the making of Hazadum, um, uh, he's walking around on the surface, Right. So. He drank from, you know, he uh, he named the nameless hills and dells. He dwell, he drank from yet untasted wells. Um, one of my favorite lines. I love that line. He drank from yet yeah. untasted wells is such a wonderful line. Um, but um, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it is true that the earliest songs that we get, the earliest stories that we get of the dwarves, the earliest encounters with the dwarves suggest that they're already subterranean. Nograt and Belagost are subterranean. And the dwarves are brought in as contractors to assist with the delving of underground things, such as Nargothrond and Minagroth. Exactly, uh, Cronath, exactly as you're saying there. Um, but but that's all post-Durin, right? That's all, yeah. you know, still it, a lot of time has passed. That doesn't prove that originally, like that Durin's first home... Um, uh, might not have been above ground. It's possible, like thinking about like the mythic significance of it, right? That when Durin finds the mirror mirror and goes underground and begins, you know, the delving of 
you know, like the finishing of Chazadum, that basically that's Durin having a Gimli in the Glittering Caves-esque experience, right? That he goes into the caverns there, um, uh, which, you know... The, the desire in yeah Dorfkai. exactly and he's like hey this these are awesome i'm gonna live here <laughs> right um and that that would that begins the subterraneanness of dwarves right it, it um, does scan uh yeah yeah um maybe maybe i don't know i mean but see this is the thing like um Even if there are delvings below this, which I would expect, that doesn't Mm -hmm. disprove it. You know what I mean? So, like, here's what I'm saying. Yeah. On the one hand, dwarves lived here for a long time afterwards, too, right? Yeah. Um, So, therefore, they would have delved underground after dwarves had become subterranean. Um, But secondly... It would help to explain why this looks so different. The whole spires thing and everything. This is a... It's not just that it has pointy bits, right? Yes, there's other dwarvish architect, architecture that has pointy bits. Um, yes. But it... but it, It's not a mere facade on a mountain. It's not yeah. just yeah. a lobby built onto it. This is... <laughs> This is reaching up to the sky. Yeah. This is... This is reaching up to the sky in ways that other Dwarvish architecture doesn't do. And the windows fit with that, right? Yeah. Um, So if if these were originally built by Durin here and then he moves into Moria and is like, no way, man. Subterranean is what's best, right? Um, Uh... Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that's... um, I think that works. I think that that would explain it. That would explain what makes this city look so different. And you know what else it explains? Like, rather, just seeing this explains why what I thought was so weird before, which was the dwarvish towers and walls and things on the edge of the cliff above, um, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Framsburg. Yeah. Um, I was like, why are they building this conspicuous on the, you know, sticky um, outy thing. Yes, right, yes. St- sticky outy thing on the cliff, which didn't even have the excuse of being, you know, the outer lobby of an underground thing. That wasn't even a thing. It was just built. It was just walls. And towers built on the edge of the cliff to be mm-hmm. visible, right? Yes. Um, and now it makes more sense, right? Because it's like Gundabad. It looks like it has the same visual effect of Gundabad. So it's an imitation, in a sense, of Gundabad. It doesn't just say, hey, y'all, dwarves live up here, so don't get any funny ideas about expanding up to the top of the cliffs. Top of the cliffs oh, are taken. Right? No, it's, it's, I'm not saying it doesn't say that. It does say that. I'm saying it doesn't yep. only say that, right? In yeah, addition, yeah, yeah. it also says, uh, hey, um, Gundabad, ahead, right? Um, yeah. This is the edge of the kingdom of uh, of, of the Gundabad dwarves. Um, 
yeah, yeah. Um, cool. We have towers. Don't all dwarves have towers? Yes, I got <laughs> right. it. Right, right, exactly. Uh, that that's unusual, except on mountaintops, right? Like Xerox Ziggul and that kind of thing. Um, yep. With, so, like, the, when the mountain is a tower, then that's cool. But, uh, um, okay. Well, I was going to run up and explore, but it's getting late already. Okay. So we didn't travel very much, but that's okay. This was my primary objective for today, was to look at and think about Gundabad more. Um, There's a lot to look at here. Yeah, I had a first reaction last time, but but it was not much more than a than a first reaction. Um, oh, wait, there's another stable... Where, where's another... St- oh, okay. If there's a stable master, we can go. Let's see, where is he? Oh, right over there. Okay, let's go find the stable master. Yes, good and, idea. And that way we can come in closer next time. That makes good sense. I think I want my cat. Okay. There we go. So let's... Uh-oh, here come the goats. Oh, there must oh, be no. a really low-level person here. Oh, fire. Well, well I feel safe. And... <laughs> oh, Bardo is with us? Level 15, what is it? Yeah. How did they, get even, how did they even get uh, up here level 15? Yeah, no, so they, uh, okay. Well, Bardo, I'm, I'm surprised you lasted that long. I joined, uh, yeah. was, was it, was it, was it Emily who was earlier, uh, who was earlier saying that she was surprised that the butterflies weren't attacking you? Now it makes sense. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, Mythgard is not liable for death or dismemberment due to level. <laughs> yes, due to extreme level discrepancies. Oh, now this is fun, but I'm not looking. I'm not looking yet. I'm going Ooh, straight to the stable bits. master. It's pointy bits. It's pointy bits. Not even looking there. And um, that's not where the stable master is, though, right? That's No, that's an enemy encampment. It's an enemy encampment. We're going to continue on. There's a dragon and... Don't mind us. We have We've got a, a conspicuous pair of feet... Got like a little Ozymandias reference here. Um, huh. And oh no, wait, I missed it. Missed it. There it is. He's in here somewhere, hidden oh, amongst they put up the ruins. For us. That's nice. That was dwarf nice. Dwarf candles are awesome. Yeah, dwarf candles okay. are much more useful than I'd given them credit for. Okay. Drangle. 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 All right, here we are. Okay. Next week, we will ride straight up here, and then we will look about us. Sounds great. Very good. Uh, just looking at the, looking at Gundabad from a new vista here. <sighs> okay, next week. Next week. Next okay, week. next week. Next week. All right. Very good. Thank you, everybody. We will be back next week for more on-the-ground exploration of the greater Gundabad region here. Um, and uh, 
Yeah, then we, we should be done with the Elder Slate, I think, by the time we uh, actually head south into Eregion. So maybe we will be able to go straight from here to Eregion. We'll see. Oh, that'd be but fun. Anyway, yeah. Thank you, everybody, for joining us, and we will see you guys next week. Good night, everybody. Thanks. Good night. Bye. <laughs>